If your happily ever after only seems real in the stories you read to your kids, if your better half has become your bitter half, when I do seems more like I don't, it's time to stop, to reset. Let's get to a place where we can be real. Where we can discuss what's happening in our marriages. What's good. The bad. What's ugly. What needs some work. God is in the business of restoring our marriages. Our passion. Our selflessness. Our dreams. And our vows. To be the good gift He designed it to be. It's time we created margin in our marriages to allow God to move. It's time to move our marriages from the fringe to the front. From good to great. It's time for the Daystar Marriage Conference. There it is. Hey, I, I, I'm really excited about the Daystar Marriage Conference because it happens on the 8th and the 9th. That's a Friday night, Saturday morning, super event. You get to uh, you know, bring your honey, and uh, we're going to have uh, a meal, a, a super cool event. And I want to give away free tickets. How many likes free stuff? Yeah. All right, here's how you do it. Every, uh, at all our campuses, if you'll register for the Marriage Conference by tomorrow, now, that's not the deadline, but it's the deadline for the free tickets. If you get registered by tomorrow, then we're going to put your name in the hat for a drawing, and you're going to get your fee back, all right? So it's going to be free for you to come. Listen, the marriage conference is so good. It is for marriages that are in trouble, and it is for marriages that are doing well, but knows they could even be better. It's for people who are not married yet, and you want to get off on the right foot. I've often said this, man, when I worked in a, uh, a steel mill, it was a six-week learning curve to learn how to drive a forklift. But if you want to get a license to uh, drive a marriage, you just go to the courthouse and you can have one in 15 minutes. Now, is that backwards or is that backwards? That's crazy. No training. You're going to be married for 50. I'm going to tell you, I've driven a forklift. I've driven a marriage. The forklift is much easier. Can I get an amen? It is. I mean, it just is. And it's 10 times harder if you're my wife because she's, she's got to deal with me. So you need some training. You need to understand the right kinds of things. And it's not just training, it's transformation. It's supernatural worship, a spirit environment. I hope you won't miss it. It's going to be great. February the 8th and the 9th, register by tomorrow, and you might get to go for free. Hey, good morning, Daystar Church in Hartzell and in Madison and on our online campus. We love you so much. Come on, everybody, clap your hands real loud for everybody online. We love you guys that are worshiping online. I know some of you work and you're catching this Tuesday or Wednesday because you got off work and whatever you're worshiping online, thank you for that. And most of all, we want to invite you to be here in the building when you can. Now, everybody knows that small groups is happening because we just finished 21 days of prayer and fasting. A lot of you are fasting different things and you showed up for church this morning. A donut wall appeared. If that's not the Holy Spirit, I don't know what it is. In fact, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm preaching faster today than I normally do because I'm on, I'm like, I'm on donut power. I'm just hyped up with donuts. And, and, and listen, what that's all about is we want you to be a part of a community. We don't want you doing church and, and, and Christianity and life by yourself, but we want you to be with others. You know, and so small groups is how that happens. And we have tremendous groups like our freedom groups. 
If you could only pick one group, I wish you'd get in a freedom group. It will just change your life. There are other groups that are fun groups, like there's a disc golf group. You know, there's lots of cool stuff. There's a financial peace university group. There's marriage groups. There's just all kinds of different groups you could get involved with. I'm leading a leadership group that's meeting early mornings on Wednesday. I hope you'll go to daystarchurch.tv slash small groups and pick one or two. Find the one or two that's right for you or go out in the lobby at any of our campuses. They'll tell you, give you information, and you can get signed up. So that happens today. Let me read you something from the Reader's Digest. A lady wrote in. She said, I once worked at a grocery store and often assisted elderly people when they came in. One woman shopped nearly every day, asking for just a few items each time. After a month, she said to me, I suppose you wonder why I'm in here every day. You see, I live with my nephew, and I hate him. And I'm not going to die and leave him with a refrigerator full of food. (laughs) Now, that is a lot of work to be sure you don't give that guy anything. I mean, that's what it looks like to live in bitterness. Imagine the amount of effort it takes to stay that focused and mad, you know? amount of extra work it takes this lady to go to the grocery store literally every day and eat her food, hoping that she just lives long enough to eat it so that her nephew doesn't get to eat it. And that's, what unforg- that's how silly and useless and painful unforgiveness is. Yet today I want to talk about learning how to forgive. And I want to start off by saying that you may not know what forgiveness actually is because there's a pop culture definition of, of forgiveness and then there's a biblical definition of forgiveness, and they are completely different. And I want to ask you, please don't turn me off just yet because I believe the people who need this message the most are the ones who are most likely to go, don't go there with me today, Jerry. I'm just not ready for this. And I want to ask you to give me a minute. Just let me talk about it. Let let me start you down a path that might show you something that that you've never known before. And, And you know why I'm here. You know, the reason I'm in this place and I'm talking about forgiveness today, it's I'm going to blame it entirely on God. Along around October or November, God dropped in my heart the idea that we would just preach our way through the Bible. Not every line and every verse, but we would, as a church family, we'd just read the whole Bible together. I hope you're doing that. There's, you know, there's people out in the lobby that can help you get on the schedule if you're new today, starting. You can just read where we're reading. And, and we just agreed as our leadership team. I said, let's just trust God. And wherever we're reading, let's just trust that it's right what we need to, what we need to learn. And, and this, this last week, we read about a guy named Joseph. And we read the most amazing story of forgiveness that you could ever imagine. And the cool thing is tomorrow when you open your Bible, you're going to read the second half of Matthew 18 <clears throat> where Jesus tells a story about forgiveness. And, and folks, if, if God puts those right there together for us to read, I just believe he wants us to learn something about forgiveness. So if you're ready for that, everybody say, okie dokie. All right, you let me do it. All right, let me tell you that story. If you read it, it's around Genesis 37 and really all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. And it's a guy named Joseph, and he has, uh, he's one of 12 brothers. And his dad, Jacob, he loves them all, but there's just something about Joseph. He's got a twinkle in his eye, a, a magnetism, a charisma that draws everybody to him. You've met this kind of person that just has something special. And, you know, everybody kind of thinks that Joseph's the favorite son, but his dad kind of makes it obvious when he makes him a handmade jacket that has all these colors in it. And colors were important because like today you get a colored shirt, it's no big deal. But way back in these days, you know, like 3,000 years ago, everybody wore, you know, just cheap threaded kind of garments. And to have colors meant a lot of money. So everybody else is kind of like wearing, we went to the thrift store for back to school clothes. 
and dad, you know, took, you know, my, 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 my one brother, you know, to the nicest mall and bought him the best stuff. So it just really made things even worse for Joseph. Now, Joseph is a dreamer. See, God's got big plans for Joseph. And Joseph is dreaming and, and, and envisioning what God's going to do. And when God gives him a dream, man, he just shares it with everybody. He's so excited that God spoke to him. And so he got this dream that kind of showed him that he was going to be a ruler, a massive ruler, and that all of his brothers, most of them older than him, by the way, would all bow down to him someday. And that his mom and dad would bow down to him someday. And that everybody would just be bowing down to him someday. And so he busts out in his big you know, rainbow-colored jacket, and he's like, hey, guess what my dream was? And he told everybody, and he got, like, crickets. And everybody's looking at him like, have you lost your mind? And so they all, the, the brothers got together, the 11, and said, that's it. You know, I've had it, the jacket, the daddy loving him, the more meatloaf at dinner or whatever it was that's always going on. Now it's this, we're going to kill him. That's a rough family right there. I'm going to go ahead and say it, you know. My sister, my, I only had one sibling, it was my sister, and she used to steal my money. It's a straight-up true story. Cheryl Potter stole my money all the time. I had this little Tootsie Roll bank thing, and she would steal my money, and then she'd make little I love you notes with little hearts on there and leave that in place of money. And I'm like, that doesn't equal. But, but I never wanted to kill her for that, you know. I have been keeping a log of interest and, you know, it's going to be big. But they wanted to kill their brother. Only the oldest brother, Reuben, said, no, let's don't kill him. Let's, let's sell him as a slave, and let's just tell Dad that he got killed. And so they take that special coat, they rip it up, they put animal blood on it, tell the dad that his, that his son, his favorite son, has been killed, and it crushes him. Meanwhile, poor Joseph is a slave. Man, you're the, the son of a, a powerful dad who has lots of land and property and, and servants. And now you're a slave and it's all because of your brothers? What are you thinking right now? If that's you, man, are you mad? Are, are you thinking about getting your hands on those brothers' throats? Are you thinking about, the man, if I ever get out of here and I get my hands on them, y'all are looking at me like, you're so, like, no, pastor, we're holy people. I'm thinking about Jesus, you know. But really, deep inside, if it really happened to you, wouldn't you be angry? But Joseph has, seems to have no bitterness because he determines in his heart, well, now that I'm a slave, I'm going to be the best slave there ever was. Crazy. He works for a guy that the Bible calls the Potiphar. He works in the Potiphar's house, and because he's the best slave, he lives in the house, and he's over everything. And because Joseph has such charisma and magnetism and that twinkle in his eye, the Potiphar's wife wants him. And she makes sexual advances toward him. And Joseph, my pastor used to say, Joseph determined that he's the man of his dreams, not the man of her dreams. So he told her no. And you've heard that old phrase that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Man, she got him back. She told her husband that he had made sexual advances on her, and so he goes to prison now. Now he's got another person to hate. He's got 11 brothers to hate and this woman. And I don't know about you, man, if I'm in prison, all I've done is heard the voice of God, tried to be a good person, I became a slave, I became the best slave, and I said no to this, you know, she-devil, and now I go to prison for it, I'm pretty bitter. Come on, look at me in your bitter face. Some of you already got it on, it'd be easy for you. I'm sorry. She's like, wouldn't you be like, every time somebody saw you, how are you? Well, can't you see? Just be bitter about it, right? Somehow Joseph doesn't have bitterness. 
He must be forgiving people. The Bible doesn't tell us all that, but he must be forgiving, making a choice to forgive because he just becomes the best prisoner. He's like the top prisoner now. And, and I'll, I'll spare you lots and lots of the story just for the sake of time. Eventually, his ability to understand and interpret dreams puts him before the Pharaoh who's had some troubling dreams, and he tells the Pharaoh, which is like the president, emperor over all of Egypt, the world's only superpower at the time. He says to him, here's what your dreams mean, that for the next seven years, there's going to be bounty and plenty and the crops and the livestock, everything's going to be wonderful. And then seven years after that, a severe famine like the world has ever known. And, and, and that's what God's telling you. And, and again, his charisma, his zeal, the thing that his father saw in him and that that woman saw in him, the Pharaoh sees and he says, you know what, I'm going to take you out of the prison and put you in the palace. And you're going to be the second in command. And you're going to execute a plan during the seven years of blessing to get us through the seven years of famine. And so literally the man woke up one morning in a prison and went to bed the next night in a palace. God can do that. <laughs> and he did that for Joseph. And it happened because he chose not to get bitter. Instead, he chose to get better. I know it's a cliche, but it's still true today. Whatever's been happening to you, you can get bitter or you can get better, but you can't do both. You can't say, well, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get better. And while I'm working hard and getting better, I'm going to skeeve a plan to get that guy. It doesn't work. You say, I'm going to either be bitter or I'm going to be better. You can't do both. Joseph said, I'm going to get better. And so God elevated him, and Joseph, man, that natural charisma that his father recognized all those years ago, that keen sense of, of awareness and the plans and the will of God led him to amass this massive amount of grain and livestock and everything that was needed, and he stored it. So when the seven years of famine struck, just like Joseph had told him was going to happen, they had plenty. And they not only had plenty for Egypt, they had plenty for other people. And they were buying up other lands just so that other people, people were giving up their lands so that they could eat. And eventually, guess who has to come to Egypt for food? Joseph's brothers. Eventually, all 11 of them have to come. And you know what they do? They bow down before him just like his dream a couple decades ago said they would. An incredible moment, only they don't recognize him. He was a kid when they threw him away. They don't even know that it's him. And now Joseph's got the upper hand. He has the opportunity, he has the authority that just by a word or a motion, he could have them killed. And all the things that I'm just going to venture to say probably at least crossed his mind to do to them, he could have done. But incredibly, Joseph says, no, I'm not going get, to get even with you. And when they did, when Joseph revealed himself to them, they were terrified. They fell on their faces. They begged him not to revenge himself. He said these words, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. What an unbelievable perspective to think that the, the deepest, darkest evil in your heart God was using to do something great in my life. Pause for a minute and ask yourself, could I, could I possibly believe that the wrongs done to me, the ills in my life, that God could use those things actually for my good? I'm going to answer that question and say, he's still God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says he doesn't love one person more than he loves another person. What an amazing, I'm going to tell you right now, I love y'all in the sense that you're children of God and that you're people of value. I love some of you in a personal way because I know you very well, but I love none of you like I love my wife. 
It's just not possible for me to love you that way. But God loves every single person exactly at maximum capacity. And if he never changes, and if he, he, he's able to do for you what he did for Joseph, could you just for a minute dream with me about the bitterness, the pain, the unforgiveness that you might be struggling with right now, that God could do a healing work in your life for you? In fact, I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. And while you're getting there, I'm going to read you a few more things Jesus said about forgiveness. Uh, and he kind of said the same thing in three places, Mark 11 and 25. He said, when you stand and pray, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So your Father in heaven can forgive you. Did you see the connection between you forgave and the Father forgave? You gave forgiveness and you got forgiveness. Two more times, Jesus says it, Luke 6 and 37, forgive and you'll be forgiven. You see that? He ties the two together. Luke 6, uh, Matthew 6 and 12, forgive us our debts, we pray to God, you forgive us, as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive other people. You see, God keeps tying those two together. He says, if you'll forgive, you'll be forgiven. But what is forgiveness? Again, I caution you not to turn me off until you understand what the real definition of forgiveness is. Because you might be thinking, I just can't do that, Jerry. That's a great story about Joseph. But right here today in 2019, I can't get there. Well, well let's just see what forgiveness is. I gave you this definition in your notes. Forgiveness is a decision. Everybody say the word decision. That's the key word to the definition. It's a decision to release a person. You just let them go from an obligation that resulted when they injured you. They injured you and they owe you something. Forgiveness is to say, I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to hold you accountable. And it can be big and small things. It, it happens when you're young. Like when I was a little kid going to my first ever vacation Bible school, I must have been about seven or eight years old when the kid beside me would not let me have any crayons. And I got so mad that when he stood back up, I filled his chair with Elmer's glue, and then I shoved him down and held him in it and glued him to the chair. And I never asked forgiveness because they kicked me out of vacation Bible school at the age of seven years old. And that boy has to choose to forgive. I forgave him while I was gluing him to the chair, but he has to choose. I don't know who he is. I'd love to go back and, and ask for forgiveness and pay him for his, you know, his pants I ruined. But, you know, there are some things that can't be done. You can't go back and fix them, and, and you can't change it. And so forgiveness is not when you agree that what they did was okay. It's when you agree that I'm just not going to try to make them fix this thing. I'm going to move on with my own life. And see, if your family's in turmoil today, I bet that unforgiveness and bitterness from unforgiveness is at the root of it. Let's read Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, he says, uh, it says, then Peter came and asked him, Lord, how often should we forgive someone who sins against us? Seven times? And he said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What did he mean? Like scholars debate, did he mean 77 times? Did he mean 490 times? What he meant was, if you've got a, a note on the refrigerator and you're keeping a list of it, you're doing it wrong. That's what he meant. It's not about measuring things out like that. And so Jesus gives a parable to explain it. It's a great story. Let's read it together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors uh, was brought to him that owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, 
Please be patient with me, and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity on him and released him and forgave the debt. Millions of dollars, an amazing display of forgiveness. But the man left, when he left the king, he went to his fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he said. He pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in uh, prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. Another translation says they were grieved. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his debt entirely. This, and this is the, the big line, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now Jesus in this parable is, is telling a great story that illustrates the point of forgiveness, but bigger than that, he's trying to tell you I'm the king who forgave massive debt of sin to you. And there will be in your life other sin debts that people owe you. And if I forgave you all of this, how much more should you forgive this small amount? And oh, by the way, if you're not able to do that, you're going to live in a living hell. And maybe he was going even farther than that and saying, if you can't learn how to forgive, you're going to live in the literal hell. It's a beautiful illustration of how important it is that we learn how to forgive. Now, I know that you can quickly read a story like that and you can you know, think about Joseph's story and say, of course, that's what I should do. But then it gets real when it happens, you know? And you can, you can make up your mind, I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to get past things and then you see them. And they're smiling, and they're having a good time, and they're happy, and you're like, who do you think you are, Miss Thing? Up here trying to be something you're not. And then maybe they go to church with you, and you know what they've done. You're trying to get passionate. You're trying to be Christian, and you just kind of cut your eye over there. Man, they're just in the third heaven. Not enough. Unless you come. And you're just like, mm. then it gets real, don't it? No, it don't get real. Y'all so holy, y'all never have these moments. What if I, I won't even tell y'all that part, never mind. Let's talk about why you can't forgive. Like, why is it hard to forgive? I've given you seven reasons I think are kind of normal reasons why we think we can't. Here's the first one, because the hurt is too big. But if forgiveness is a weight. Unforgiveness is a weight that weighs only on you and not on the other person. Wouldn't you need to unburden the weight even more because it's bigger? When you realize when you choose not to forgive, you're drinking poison hoping the other person dies, right? But when you know it's a big burden, it's even that more important to unload the burden. So then we might say, well, after what they did, I have a right to hold a grudge. I can't argue that. You have a right, but you also have the right to forgive. And here's what a grudge is. A grudge is a porcupine. Everybody say porcupine. 
A grudge is a porcupine. That ill, that, that, that evil thing they did to you that causes you to hold a grudge, you're holding not a grudge, you're holding a porcupine. And the tighter you hold that porcupine, the more it hurts. And the bigger that porcupine is, the more painful it is. And you have a right to hold that porcupine, but you also have a right to walk in freedom, to walk in healing, to release the pain and let it go. And what you're going to do is you're going to find out it heals you, not the other person. So you have a right, but you don't need to hold that grudge. The third thing we might say is, well, they haven't changed. They don't deserve forgiveness. Again, you may be right. But what is the criteria that you want others to use when they decide to forgive you? Now, this is a great methodology if you're perfect. If you never need any forgiveness from God or man, then you just keep a good record of everything everybody's done and you hold them in account. But if, like me, you fail and you fall and you make mistakes and you're going to need forgiveness, you see, like everything else we're learning in Scripture, right there at the book of Genesis, somewhere around Genesis 8, the Bible says, seed time and harvest will never go away. That when you put something in the ground, it will always harvest back into your life. And you know what I need to be doing? Because I know I need a lot of forgiveness. I need people to look at me and go, man, I can't believe he did that, but he's, you know what, he's a good guy. I'm going to cut him some slack. I'm going to need that in my life. So for me to get a crop of forgiveness, I need to be sowing seeds of what? Forgiveness. If seed time and harvest is real in my life, I can sow bitterness and get more of it back. I can sow anger and get more of it back, or I can sow forgiveness and get more of it back. And then we might say, well, I'll do it when the time is right because, number four, time will heal it. That's a false statement. Time heals all wounds. That's not true. Nothing heals itself without something making the healing happen. Time heals absolutely nothing. Go outside, cut a hole in your tire, and watch it and wait until it heals itself. Well, time heals it. Let's time it. You're going to need a ride home, brother, because time's not going to heal anything. Now, if you cut your hand, time will heal that. Actually, time doesn't heal anything. God created your hand, your body, to be a self-healing mechanism that because the conditions are right, over time, healing occurs. Did you hear what I said? When the conditions are right, then over time, healing occurs. But if you're waiting on healing to come and your conditions look like this, no healing is going to happen. You're just cutting it open again and again and again and again. The conditions have to be right. Number five, here's what we say. Okay, I'll do it. I'll forgive them, but only after they come and say they're sorry. They're probably not going to say they're sorry. And if you only release the porcupine after someone comes up and says, I'm sorry for giving you a porcupine, you're going to hold on to that porcupine for the rest of your life. If you wait on that other person to get it straight, you, and, and here's, the, here's the problem. When you do that, you make yourself hostage to them. That's as if someone hurt you. They found you in a dark alley. They beat you and, and injured you so badly that you were rushed to the emergency room and a surgeon had to do surgery over you, but you came to and you said, wait a minute, surgeon. I don't want you to do any healing work on me. I want you to go find the thug that put me in this emergency room, and I want him to do the healing on me. Would you want that guy to have the scalpel? Would you want that guy to be in charge of letting you be healed? But when you say, I'm not going to get past it until they make it right, you're putting yourself in their hands again, and aren't they the ones that hurt you to start with? 
Don't let them be the arbiter of your future. Don't let them dictate how much joy is going to be in your life. You are better than that. Your Father in heaven has something for you that's better than that. Don't wait on them. Pastor, that's a great idea, but number six, I can't forgive it if I can't forget it. To which I would say, you will never forget it until you forgive it. It doesn't work the way you're thinking. You think I forget it, and that's how I know I can forgive it. And I'm telling you, write this down, that forgiveness is a choice that begins a process of forgetting. Now let's be real here. Some hurts in your life you will never forget. You'll never forget them. They're too deep. But the process of healing begins with forgiveness. And, and, And if right now it's right here in your face, when you begin to forgive, it'll go farther and farther and farther. And you may never live long enough for it to get entirely and completely out of your life. But don't you want it as far away from you as you can? Forgiving begins the process. In fact, Jesus, God, when when he forgives us, he does it that way. He forgives first and forgets later. I'll show it to you. In Jeremiah 31 and 34, God says, For I will forgive their wickedness first. Then he said, I'll remember their sins no more. Second. It always starts with forgiveness, and it moves on to forgetting. And maybe the biggest reason why we think we think we can't forgive is number seven but if I do they'll just do it again I can't forgive them can't let them back in close I can't and see that that argument reveals a misunderstanding about forgiveness forgiveness is not saying what you did was okay forgiveness is not even saying to the other person hey you're okay it's not accepting your behavior it's not even accepting you There may be a person, could even be a family member. You just don't need them in your life, maybe ever again. Forgiving them does not invite them back in. You don't even have to tell them they've been forgiven. Listen, forgiveness is entirely about you and your father. It is not about that person. You don't have to tell that person. You don't have to go to that person. You don't have to accept that person. You don't have to invite that person back into your life. What you have to say is, God, I'm not going to go down this path because you're not down this path. I want to go where you are, God. I'm going to let you heal me. I'm going to let the porcupine go. We need to name this porcupine. What would we call him? Somebody shout it out. Kevin. Kevin, of course, because that's the perfect name for the porcupine. I want everybody to say, free Kevin. Kevin. On the count of three, say it with me. One, two, three. Free Kevin. You are holding on to this porcupine. You're holding on to Kevin, and you need to let him go. See, when we don't, there's all kinds of fallout that happens in our life. And Jesus' story reveals it. Let me give you these as we close today. Unforgiveness costs you friendships. Write that down. See, the guy in the story that, that loaned the thousands to his friend, you got to be pretty good friends to loan $1,000, right? Pretty good friend. You don't just loan that to anybody. But how good a friend do you think it were after he got through choking him? You know, he grabbed it, the Bible says he grabbed his throat. Give me my money back. See, you need more friendships. And if you don't forgive people, 
You're going to move on. You're going to say, well, I'll just get another friend. I'll get a better friend. You'll find out that all friends are, are people who are flawed, and everybody in your life will make mistakes, and you'll have to learn to forgive, or you'll have no friends. Secondly, unforgiveness just makes you stupid. I'm sorry. I know that you parents don't let your children say that. That's why they're in kids' church right now, and we're not saying the S word. But here among grown-ups, can I just say, to tell someone, because you owe me so much money, I'm going to put you in prison until you can pay me back, that's stupid. You need to let him go to work so he can pay you back. And it reveals that the man really didn't want his money back. He wanted the other person to hurt. He wanted to get even. He wanted to inflict pain on him. And it made him irrational thinking the wrong kinds of thoughts. It really is a poison that bitterness makes you not think clearly and not be who you want to be as a person. That's why you need to let that, 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 that sickness of, of unforgiveness out of your life. Number three, unforgiveness costs you respect. Verse 31 says his friends were deeply grieved at him, so much that they told on him. Those are his friends. You know, people eventually, they don't want to be around that anger they don't want to be around that hatred. They don't want to be around that constant vitriol. And, and your world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller when you let that bubble up inside of you. Uh, let me pause again and say, I'm not saying what I'm not minimizing the pain of what you're going through or what has happened to you. I'm just saying I'm trying to maximize the ability of God. That when you make a spiritual decision to walk out of that place of bitterness, that the power of God is enough to sustain you and get you free. And the fourth thing it does is it damages our relationship with God. The story of Jesus says that the, the king sent the man uh, in, in, into a place to be tortured. And this is how your father will treat you, your heavenly father, unless you learn how to forgive. The Bible actually says, and this is the last verse I want to share with you, be angry. Did you know anger is not a sin? You can be angry. The Bible says it. Be angry and do not sin. Did you know, some of you don't know that, that it's possible for your blood to boil and you still don't sin. Anger is not a sin. You're just like, you know, just, you can just feel it like a thermometer going to the top and you still don't have to blow your top. Be angry and don't sin, but this, look at the second half of that verse. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. God is saying... Not even one night should you go to bed bitter and angry. This is so important for marriages. Don't go to bed angry. The Bible actually says you give place to the devil. That when you go to sleep, he goes to work. Do you know that? When you're angry and bitter in your marriage and you go to sleep that way, the devil goes to work. That's actually what your Bible says. And so if... If God knows that bitterness is so damaging, He doesn't want you to spend one night bitter, how much damage has it done for you that you've spent a year bitter or five years bitter? And some people feel to spend, spend a lifetime being bitter. The best time to forgive it is immediately. To walk away. Not to accept it, not to say it's okay, but to start your healing process is immediately. The second best time is right now to make a choice to say I can't fix this I can't change this but I'm going to let healing start in my life I'm going to let that porcupine go I'm going to stop squeezing it and hurting myself you know what's crazy I, did, I read some research this week about the benefits of forgiveness and that research said 
that there's actually a link between people who forgive and the emotional and physical health of those people. That forgiving people are more stable. They have better romantic relationships. They have better friendships. They are happier. They're less prone to depression and anxiety. They have lower blood pressure, less cancer. They stand taller and their face looks better. Some of y'all would look better. Instead of looking like this, you look like this. Wow. It would just make your life different if you could get there. I know that some of you have experienced horrible pain. Maybe some of you right now are trying to figure out how to get through it. I want to say it one more time. I feel like I've been saying it like a broken record, but I want you to hear. I'm not trying to minimize that pain. I know your pain's different from mine. I I don't know what it's like to live with what you've gone through, nor you me. But it's not a question of your ability. It's a question of God's ability. This week I had a text conversation and and then a face-to-face conversation with a very godly man in our church. He leads freedom groups. He really attributes a lot of who he has become as a man and his ability to forgive others because of those freedom groups. But this week, he was in a room and faced the man who murdered his mother on Mother's Day, 2017. And Bobby shared how his mind quickly went to all the things he wanted to do to that man. You could imagine. He killed my mother on Mother's Day. And the man's going to prison. But in the end, he said, you know what? God reminded me of what he's done in my life. Reminded me there's value in that person. And he resolved to pray for him. He said, I'm going to pray for him. And I'm going to pray that God will do a healing work in that man's life. I don't know if I could get there. That's amazing. But I promise you, the only way anybody gets there is by the power of God working in their life. Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I want you to awaken to the realization right now that you could say goodbye to bitterness and the the chain that has bound you to that person or that event. You could say goodbye to that today. And God could begin a healing process. When I thought about Bobby, And what had happened, I was there on Mother's Day in his mom's house. She'd been killed in the yard. I thought about Bobby and I thought about the devil taking a, a this is the image that got in my mind, a grappling hook. You know, the like tied to a chain that you could throw and it would stick into something and you could pull it to you. Like the enemy took that grappling hook and threw it right into Bobby's heart and dug its claws into his heart and was going to pull him and had a design to destroy his heart and his future and his relationships with his wife and his children and all the good things and just pulled him closer and closer over years of bitterness and unresolved anger but by the power of the Holy Spirit and through God's grace when Bobby said I'm going to choose to let this thing go and I'm going to choose to daily pray for that man it's like he just cut the cord 
And he said, no more, Satan, will you have control of my life. I'm not going to be who you and your uh, attacks on my life meant. You're not going to hold me with this anymore. I am free by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know today, you too can be free.